Hey, the, uh, the following are um, stories of how children often view God, their, their take on God, their view of God their, from their vantage point. The first story is told of a little girl who was uh, all dressed in her Sunday best, and she was running as fast as she could, trying not to be late for her Bible study class. And as she ran, she prayed, Dear Lord, please, please, please don't let me be late. And as she was running and praying, she tripped on a curb and she fell. She skinned her knees, she ripped her dress, she got back up, dusted herself off, picked her stuff up, she started to run again and she began to pray again. She said, Lord, Lord, please, please don't let me be late. But you don't have to shove me either. <laughs> I like the, uh, the kindergarten uh, teacher who was observing her classroom of children while they drew. And she would occasionally walk around to each one of the children and look at their artwork. And as she got to one little girl who was working dig- diligently, she didn't even look up at the teacher. The teacher said, honey, what are you drawing? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she didn't even look up, she just kept drawing. The teacher said, but, but no one knows what God looks like. Without even blinking an eye, she just kept going. She said, they will in a minute. <laughs> you know, I love, I love stories like that because, uh, you know, they're funny. But the longer that I thought about those stories, the more I realized that I have more in common with those little girls than I'd like to admit. You know what I mean? Because oftentimes I find myself with a very childish view of God. And in fact, ask yourself this question, how, how many of us have ever blamed God for the consequences of our own actions and of our own decisions? You know, we're running and we're not looking where we're going and we trip over the curb and somehow or another it's God's fault because of something that we chose to do. See, we're a lot like that little girl. Or how many of us want to draw God in our own image, in our own likeness? We want Him to be a certain way and we don't allow Him to reveal Himself to us for who He really is and how He really, uh, what His character is all about and how He wants to convey Himself to us. We've got our own idea of a God that we want to draw, draw in a little box and say, this is my version of God. And as long as, God, you stay in that little box and, and you're content to be there, then I'm content to have you there, and then I'll go about my life and do the things that I want to do the way I want to do it. You know, as I thought about those stories, I realized how oftentimes in my own life I'm guilty of putting God in a box and saying, this is my version or image of God, or blaming Him for my own decisions and my own actions. And I think as we've been going through this study in the book of Romans, that that's the point that God's trying to get across to us as he conveyed a message through the Apostle Paul in the letter that he wrote to the Romans. He wants us to see him for who he really is, but he also wants us to see us for who we really are. It's so easy in life oftentimes to find the guilt or the wrong in those around us. We point a finger and we say that, you know what, you're guilty of this or you're guilty of that, But if we take a look at the finger that's pointing, we'll realize very quickly that as we point one finger out, there's three fingers pointing back. But we become oblivious to the obvious. I like what Jesus said. He said, you know, isn't it amazing how oftentimes we can find the speck in the eye of another person while being so oblivious to the obvious log in our own eye? We can find the faults in others and we don't see any fault in ourselves. And so the Word of God, the standard of God, is to help us see us as God sees us. 
to measure who we think we are and what we do against an objective standard, kind of of a wall, so to speak, as our children were growing, you would take them and measure them against the wall, and the standard was, regardless of how big they felt they were or tall they thought they were getting, the objective standard was, put your back up against it, and we'll see whether you're getting taller or not. But I felt tall this week. Well, that's good, you know. You always want to feel tall. That's a good thing. But the line indicates you may have shrunk. You know, that was never really encouraging, but you know, I always like to mess with them a little bit. But, uh, but the bottom line is, is that there's the objective standard of measurement. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 2 as we continue to see from God's vantage point what he wants us to see about ourselves. We've learned to date that all are guilty before God. The Bible clearly says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there's none righteous, no, not one. And in this particular session, as we look at this, this passage, we're going to learn that you know God judges us according to his standard and not according to how we think he should judge us. How God judges us is the theme of Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we read these words. Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the, of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. As you go back to chapter 2 and the first verse there, you see that this passage includes a chapter break, and it really begins a new section. But Paul now addresses the reader and the listener directly. You know, as we're going through, you can read what we did the last time we were together in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Oftentimes we can read that section and kind of um, isolate ourselves from what was being said. We look at that and say, you know what though, but that, that doesn't apply to me. How oftentimes we see or hear, and I, and I hear this often, and, and I, I find it rather amusing to some ex extent, and that is this. How many times have you ever said, 
and utter the phrase, boy, I sure wish so-and-so would have been here today. They really could have used that. I mean, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh, man, I wish I'd have been there. It was perfect for them. But it didn't apply to me. But it was perfect for them. Or we sit there and we elbow. It's kind of like you're sitting there and you elbow and the other person like, I hope you're paying attention because he's speaking directly to you. I know he's not talking to me because I am what? I am innocent. I'm innocent. And so we read, you know, this section, verses 31 uh, of 18 through 32, and we look at that and go, you know what? That doesn't apply to me. But as is often the case, God never wants doctrine to remain something that is hypothetical. He wants it to always become individual. Every person here, including myself, God is speaking to us individually. He wants us to deal on an individual basis. It's not a group thing. It's individually. How does this apply to me? How does this affect my life? How does this apply to how I live today and how I think today? How should it apply? What should I change? If I'm wrong, should I change? I mean, how does this affect me? And that's what he wants to get across. Because as often as the case, when you read something like verses 18 through 32, which we did last time, you know, there's a, there's a generalization that, that takes place there as God was condemning humanity for the choices that man has made that is reflected in the behavior that he showed us the last time we were together. Now, some of us will sit there and say, you know what, though, but, you know, I don't have a problem with immorality. I don't have a problem with homosexuality. I'm not guilty of these things. I'm not guilty of being evil intended. I'm not a slanderer. I'm not a gossip. I'm not, you know, disobedient to my parents. This doesn't apply to me. And so there's always that aspect of this is for someone else, not for me. Now what God does is, in this particular case, in this particular culture too, think of the people that were listening to these words or reading these words in our case saying, man, you know what? There are some people out there that are really messed up. But thank God I'm not one of them. Hallelujah. <laughs> see what I mean about being oblivious to the obvious? You see what I'm saying? It's just, you know, it's just so hard for us to see it in our own life. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2, and let's go through and see what God wants us to learn on an individual basis. It says, Therefore... You are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Therefore, always as we read through the Bible, and it says, therefore, connects the previous thought to the now the thought that's being introduced. What's it there for? It's there for the purpose of connecting what we've already learned to what we're about to learn. Therefore, everyone in the entire human race has turned away from God and commits sins even though there are differences of frequency, extent, and degree. In addition, the entire human race, especially moral unbelievers, and in this particular case, as we'll see in the end of this chapter next, next week, that the Jews stood condemned before God because God uses five divine standards of judgment that apply to every person. Specifically in this area, he's referring to those who believe themselves to be moral, yet God applies this divine standard of judgment to help them to understand no matter how good you and I think that we are, we will be measured against God's standard of judgment. 
It is the divine standard. It is absolute. It is infinite. It is perfect. It is just. So as God measures your life and my life, even though we may look at ourselves and say, you know what, I'm a good person. How many times have you heard people say, but I can't believe that God would judge good people. So-and-so is a good person. The problem is defining good. We compare ourselves to one another. I'm better than that person, therefore I'm good. And the only way I know I'm good is that I'm not as bad as them. But is that a standard of judgment or measurement that's objective? Obviously not. Because even the person that we think that we're better than looks at another person and thinks they're better than someone else. Well, you may not think I'm good, but I think I'm good because you don't know the other people I'm hanging around and I'm better than them. So how can this apply to me? And it gets very, very confusing. But God cuts through all of it in that he objectively measures us according to his standard of measurement or judgment. And so as we look at this passage, we begin to realize that these five standards that God uses of judgment will help the person who thinks they're a good person see themselves from God's perspective. The world is filled with good moral people as we compare them to other folks around them. The problem is that's not God's standard of judgment, and we need to recognize and understand that. I'll give you an example. In our business, we do business with good moral people that don't believe in God, that aren't Christians, don't claim to be Christians, aren't, aren't, uh, do not buy into the Judeo-Christian value system, but they are good moral people and that they'd never cheat us, they'd never lie to us, they'd never steal from us. I do work with some good moral people that we don't even have contracts on, and unfortunately I do work with, quote, Christian people. We've got to make sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed. Wow, what's up with that? Isn't that fascinating? I mean, it's the old, you know, we like to talk about it's the old school. You know, the people that came from the environment that said, my word is my bond. If I shake hands and said it's a deal, it's a deal. And I don't need an attorney to draw paperwork, and I don't need somebody to cover, make sure we've got everything covered here. If this is what you and I agree to, just go and do it, and this is what I'll do on my end, and as soon as it's done, I'll send you a check. We have people that we work with that are like that. That's a wonderful experience. Now, they are good people in their own eyes and even good in my eyes. Hey, that's good. those are good people. But unfortunately for them, I'm not the one who will judge them. Because if it was up to me, I'd judge people based on all kinds of interesting things. My grandma would go to heaven, she makes good lasagna. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, you know, if it was based on my standard of judgment, it's like, hey. You know, and on the other hand is, and if it was based on my standard of judgment, there are a lot of people who are going to fry so, thank God I'm not God, huh? So, let's take a look at this. Five standards of judgment. According to Scripture, here's how God will judge you and I. Let's make it a personal thing. It's not how God will judge other people. This is how God will judge you, and he will judge me. The first standard of judgment is the truth. He will judge us according to the truth. Verses 1 through 3, we read, Therefore, you're without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment... For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you, judge, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls, or is according to the truth some versions have, it rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and you do the same yourself, <laughs> that you will escape the judgment of God? You notice the argument that he has here is that is this. 
The Bible tells us that God is called the God of truth. Psalm 31.5, Isaiah 65.16. He's not called, you know, God is love, uh, God is light. God is never called is truth, although Jesus said that he was the way, the truth. The Bible claims that God is a God of truth. All truth, anything that's true, originates with him. How do you know something is true and something is false? How do you know something is right or something is wrong? How we know that is, it starts with God. He came up with the program. He tells us what is right. He tells us what is wrong. The problem with humanity is there's a way that seems right, but the end is destruction. It looks like the right thing to do, but God says, no, it's not right because I declare what's right, I declare what's right. Wrong, I declare what's good, I declare what's bad. And therefore, we need to understand that God is the originator of all that is right or truth. You know, the Greek philosophers like to argue about what is truth. In fact, when Jesus was being tried, what is truth? What is truth? What's the great truth of the universe? What is absolutely true? Are there things in life that are absolutely true 100% of the times? Or is it only true because it's true to you or it's true to me? We live in a, a world of moral relativity. And that is simply this. Well, it may be true to you, but it's not true to me. What? It may be true to you, but it's not true to me. What is that supposed to mean? Well, it's according to my truth. See, we, we, we heard that nonsense for years with everything that took place in Washington, D.C. Well, what is truth? What is is? What is the? What is what? What is duh? You know, but that's the way that we look at things. So as we, we understand something here, we need to recognize that God is a God of all truth. Literally, he will judge people according to the truth. And he establishes what is true. There's no escape from that judgment in any way possible for any human being. One may be moral and may even judge others as guilty, but yet is judged by God for violating the same standards. Let me give you an example of how this argument has been used recently. Last week, as you know, in the state of California, there was a Proposition 22, which was to, if you voted yes, it was to, uh, to confine the definition of marriage as it has always been since the beginning when God created male and female, was that there would be one man, one woman, heterosexual marriage simply defined. The arguments for those who opposed to limit that definition to a man and a woman, they would come back and they would say things like, you know what, you are intolerant if you vote for that proposition. If you support that, you are an intolerant person. And I would smile and I would laugh because our world has got to the point where we don't think very much. We are not reasonable, rational human beings as God has created us. We don't like to think. We are lazy. And when you ask us a question of a person who says, wow, you know what, well, I don't want to be considered intolerant, I would ask him this question. Do you not think that those who are accusing you of being intolerant are not intolerant themselves? Because if they don't tolerate your position, what makes you think that they are tolerant people? They are just as intolerant as we are. And our society is based on intolerance. There are things that none of us will tolerate. That's why we have laws. We will not tolerate abusing one another. We're assaulting one another. We don't tolerate raping other people. We don't tolerate murdering other people. We don't tolerate a lot of things in our culture. We are very intolerant people toward those things that would harm us. 
So to be, be accused of being intolerant is nonsense if it's used in the standard of, well, you're not going to tolerate every behavior. No, I don't tolerate every behavior, and neither do you. And by the same standard by which you have just judged me, you are judging yourself. But we don't see that. We don't see the one finger out and the three fingers in. We're blinded to that because all we care about is our point of view. But what God helps us to see in a very objective way is, he says, hey, listen, you know what? By the same standard which you judge others, you are then condemning yourself. Don't you see that? And we all go, huh? Help me understand it. Perfect illustration. I find myself, on a somewhat regular basis, talking with people who are having problems in their life. Usually, according to them, the problems are directly related to the fact that someone else in their life isn't dealing with the problems in their life, therefore creating problems in that person's life. It's usually the way it works, right? Okay, perfect illustration, marriage. People are having problems in marriage. I hear that, I hear the man's side of it, I hear his side, I hear the husband's side, then I hear the wife's side. And then I realize one thing, that God knows the truth, and I don't. Couldn't tell you. Listen to this one, listen to that one, and whoever comes with the last convincing argument seems to be the way that we usually sway. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, Wow, his argument was pretty solid. Wow, her argument was really solid, and he didn't bring any of that up. So what's up with that? And then, fortunately for us, God knows the truth. So my answer always is, well, there's his side, there's her side, and then there's the truth. And God is the one who figures out the truth. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 4. Let's look at verse uh, 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Notice that God's word is truth. Jesus said as he prayed to the Father that believers would be sanctified or separated according to God's truth, that would live according to the truth as revealed to us by God. He's saying that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He goes on to say, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, speaking of specifically judgment. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Too often in life, we can lead others to believe that which is not true and in the process even deceive ourselves. The condemnation here is that we often point fingers and declare others guilty even though we're just as guilty by the same standard of measurement. For example, go back to what we learned last time in, in uh, the first chapter of, of Romans 18 through 32. We can sit there and say, you know what? That person is guilty of homosexuality. And all the time, as we point our fingers, accusing them of being guilty of sin, the Bible also in the same passage says, you know what? But mankind is also guilty of sexual immorality, which is all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage, according to the Bible, is sin violating God's standard before God. 
So here are people who are having sex outside of marriage who point to someone else and say they are guilty before God for being homosexual when they themselves are just as guilty before God for having sex outside of marriage. Now, I use that as an illustration because it's the hot button of our day, but what's real fascinating about that is this. God says, don't you see that the same standard that you're using to judge another, the standard is the measurement of what? The objective truth of the Word of God. By God's measurement, they are guilty, but by the same standard, you're guilty. But you don't see your own guilt? See, God judges us according to truth. His truth, absolute truth. We look at that and go, yeah, that person's a liar, or that person is a gossip, or that person is a slanderer, or that person cheated me in business. And God says, well, by the same standard you're using to judge them, are you not also guilty yourself of something in that standard that you violated? God judges us according to that standard of measurement, and it's the truth, because God knows. As I mentioned, when we were going through this as a nation, when you know, President Clinton was doing his thing back there with uh, Miss Lewinsky and all that was going on, I found it fascinating that there were those who would come forward and they would point a finger at him saying the guy is guilty of sexual immorality. Then all of a sudden the background tracks are being done on those who were being accusing, uh, who were accusing the man. And all of a sudden we find out, man, they're dirty too. So no one wants to accuse anybody because they're afraid that, you know what, by the same standard that they're judging someone else, they will also be judged. Now, don't misunderstand something because the logical, rational world that we live in says, therefore, who are we to judge? Let's just not judge anybody. That way, we can all just do what we want to do whenever we want to do it. And I look at them and say, man, that's a making for anarchy. That's why we have laws. That's why we have standards. You can't say, let's just not judge anybody for anything that they do. Can you imagine? Well, who am I to judge you for beating that person up? Because, you know, I've thought about beating people up, too. Just never had the courage that you did. Never find anybody smaller either. You know, and it's like, wait a minute. What, what are we thinking here? You know, the standard of measurement is, is the truth. Remember when Jesus went to the woman who had happened to be caught, John chapter 8, read it sometime, the woman who happened to be caught in the very act of adultery? What's the chances of that? In the very act of adultery, she was caught. And the reason she was caught was because she was set up. Because the woman was brought to Jesus and the guy conveniently disappeared. Because under the law, they both were going to die. But since he was probably one of the buddies of the group of people that came to Jesus to ask the question, they were trying to trick him into seeing how he was going to deal with this one. You know, they're always trying to trick him, you know. Just a little bit slower than him, fortunately for all of us. <clears throat> but they were trying to trick him. And so, Jesus, as he looked at the crowd, just asked one simple question. All right, well, which one of you that has no sin wants to go ahead and throw the first stone? And then he knelt down and he started to write. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote, but I know whatever he wrote, the oldest started to leave first, then the youngest. Now, I'm wondering, and I don't think it's a stretch because we just learned that, you know what, all things are open and laid bare to him, God, whom we have to do in judgment. I'm just wondering if Jesus just knelt down and looked at the first guy just started writing down all the little secret sins that he had committed in his life. Should I keep going? Now, the young guys, you know, the young guys are thinking, I haven't lived that long. <coughs> They're going, go ahead, keep writing. 
I said, oh, okay, then I'll get to you. Oh, never mind. I'll go ahead and go too. Now, that's not the end of the story. Because when Jesus came to the woman then and said, where have your accusers gone? She said, they all left. He goes, well, you know what? Then I will not accuse you either, but I will say this. Go from this day forward and sin no more. Truth. He didn't color code it. He didn't candy coat it. He didn't make it anything it wasn't. He said, hey, you're a sinner. You're an adulterer. You're guilty under the law. But you know what's interesting is, and so were every one of those men who thought they were better than you, who came to accuse you, they were just as guilty before God. Because God judges according to the truth. Now what's interesting about being judged according to the truth is that God's judgment rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God will never judge another person unjustly. God will never make a mistake and condemn a person for eternity. <clears throat> God is not like man. He won't review the evidence, make a decision, and find out later with DNA evidence, wow, we made a mistake. God judges according to truth. Absolute truth. Because he knows the truth. He knows everything. He sees everything. He understands everything. You and I can't get away with anything. He sees us for who we really are. Before I was a Christian, I would judge Christians based on how I thought Christians should live. Have you ever been there? Well, if you're a Christian, you should be doing this, 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 and that. And you shouldn't be doing this, 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 and that. Right? I would judge Christians based on how I thought Christians should live. The irony in all that is, is that while I was judging and condemning them, and when they fell short of how I thought they should live, I would call them hypocrites. I'd say they have a double standard. I would use it as my excuse just to keep doing the things that I wanted to do, which, by the way, were the exact same things I was accusing them of doing that violated the standard. Well, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be drinking. You shouldn't be doing that. And the other thing, and I'd be like, as I'm arguing with them, drinking a beer. You know, if you're a Christian, you really shouldn't be drinking. What? Well, wait a minute. What's up with you? Well, it doesn't matter. That standard doesn't apply to me. Do you see how we think? And God says, oh, Chuck, wait a minute. That standard applies to all humanity. And while you condemn that person, you, in essence, have just condemned yourself before God. You are doing the exact same things that you accuse others of doing, and they're guilty, but here's what we say. But it's different in my case. It's different in my case. Now, that doesn't, yeah, it's not different, not, not as far as God is concerned. God's judgment is right. It's accurate. He knows all the facts. He's not hindered in any way from coming to a conclusion based on the truth. And that's how he judges all human beings. The second thing he judges on is according to our attitudes. Look at verse 4 and 5. He says, Or do you think lightly of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice what he says, do you think lightly? Do you think lightly? According to God's word, we're judged for an attitude that treats lightly God's goodness. We're guilty, we're condemned by God for underestimating, not appreciating the value of God's kindness and his patience. When we were going through 1 Corinthians 13, we learned that, that love is patient. That God does not always judge us immediately for those things we do that are wrong before God. 
that God is that he's good, that he's patient, he's forbearing. He doesn't instantly judge you and I when we violate his standard. The purpose of that patience is to what? Is to lead us to repentance. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. I had a couple books, 2 Peter, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3, notice these words. <clears throat> we read, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient <clears throat> with humanity so that all of humanity, it's God's desire, that all humanity will come to repent of their sin. To acknowledge before God what God says is true. God, you're right. I'm just as guilty as them. What, what can, I can't do anything about it. I need to repent, which means to turn from that and turn toward Him. All of humanity is in rebellion against God, walking away from God. Repentance simply means to come to our realization that what God says about us is true, acknowledge that we fall short of God's standard, that we're, according to the Bible, sinners. We acknowledge that. We repent and say, Lord, forgive me for that, and now I'm going to turn and I'm going to walk towards you and do what you say to do, what you call right, what you call wrong. And we look at that and say, that's what repentance. You know, God is patient with people to bring them to repentance. But you know what man does? In the stubbornness of man's heart and in the rebellion of his heart, instead of seeing God's patience and his love and his forbearance that would draw us to himself, we begin to mock him. In fact, in that same passage in verse, uh, in verse 3, knowing this first of all, in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Forever, since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. You notice what they say? There are those who say, you know what? I can do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I've never yet experienced the judgment of God in my life for what I'm doing. I've always lived this way. I'm just fine, thank you. God is saying, the only reason you've been getting away with what you've been getting away with is because I have been patient in my judgment of you, hoping that my patience will draw you back to myself. But man mocks God and says, you know what? Judgment, schmudgment. For 120 years, they mocked Noah building the ark when he was preaching that God was going to judge them for their rebellion against God. 120 years, they shook their face, their hand in the face of God and said, judgment, schmudgment. Judgment's not coming. But the reality is that judgment, when it does come, comes swiftly and justly. But it's God's love and patience and forbearance that was to draw people to himself because he doesn't judge people immediately. And we look at our culture and we say, but you know what, but I'm getting away with it. I haven't contracted any sexually transmitted disease. I haven't gotten this or gotten that. I've never got pregnant outside of marriage. I've that or the other thing. I've never got caught lying, cheating, stealing. Hey, you know what, I guess God doesn't really exist and everything you're talking about as far as judgment's concerned is a crock. Psalm 73, read it on your own this week. David looked at the world around him and said, God, you know what? Am I wasting my time living my life according to your principles? 
Because everywhere I look, people are having a great time and they're not being judged for what you tell me not to do that's wrong. I don't get it. They're living the fat, good life, having a great time, having fun, doing all the things that you tell your people not to do, they're doing, and they are getting away with it. The psalm says that David almost made a huge mistake in judgment and error by looking and seeing that and buying into the lie. He almost bought into that lie. He said, I was on a slippery slope and I was ready to go and go that direction myself because if they're going to get away with it, then I'm starting to question God whether or not what you tell me is the truth. I'm going to go try it myself. And then the turning point was, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord and I saw God for who He is in His holiness and His righteousness and His judgment and you are setting them up for the day of judgment. Listen to this. God is setting up humanity, so to speak, for the day of judgment so that they will be without any excuse. Every person that stands before the judgment seat of Christ and say, God, you can't judge me because I was a good person, he will say, you know what? You are not a good person and I'm judging you based on my standard and according to my standard, you are guilty. So don't you ever say that you're going to stand before God one day and say, well, you know what? I'm better than everybody else. You say, I don't care how good you think you were in relationship to anybody else, how bad you think you were in relationship to anybody else, because I'm going to judge you according to the truth. Number one, I know you better than anybody will ever know you. And number two, I'm going to judge you according to your attitude. And your attitude was that, you know what, you can just do what you want to do whenever you want to do it. You can violate all my standards, and I never stepped in to judge you, and therefore you thought I didn't exist, and that's why you lived the way that you lived. Well, guess what? Payday one day, and it's now here. Notice what he says. They're storing up, back in Romans 2, they're storing up for themselves in the day of wrath. Do you realize that we are eternal human beings? We live in these bodies today, but we live eternally. Absent from the bottom, present with the Lord, for those who have come to know Christ, the bottom line is this, that when you die, you just go from one state of being to another. We do not, not exist any longer when we die. We continue to live. And we can read that in John chapter 11. Even though he dies, if he believes in me, he shall surely live. I mean, we don't cease to exist. That's my point. And we are storing up for them ourselves either wrath, according to God's judgment, or for the believer, we're storing up for ourselves rewards according to how we live today and whether we're faithful to what God tells us to do. One way or the other, we are sending ahead something. So you're either sending ahead where God will use that ammunition against you to judge you and condemn you, or you are sending ahead that which God will no longer judge you for if you've come to faith in Christ because there's no judgment or condemnation to those who are in Christ, but we send ahead that which he will judge us for for the purpose of rewarding our faithfulness in this life. Recognize and understand this. Every decision that you and I make today is an eternal decision that will be sent ahead of us. It will either be to a positive, a deposit in our account, or it's a withdrawal from our account. We need to recognize and understand that. That's like taking a person who is a young person, and they don't recognize and understand that every decision that you make as a young person today, in your dating relationships, for example, every decision that you make today is going to affect your future relationship with your future spouse. Every decision. You will either come into that marriage with no baggage whatsoever or you will bring a truckload of junk in there with you that you're going to have to deal with together because you made that decision today in this moment of time but you don't understand and recognize it will impact your life for years and years to come. 
The same is true eternally. Every decision that you and I make today will impact our future relationship with the Lord for all of eternity. We need to take more serious the decisions that we're making today. But he says our attitude is one that God will judge human beings because their attitude was, you know what, I don't believe in the judgment of God. I will just live my life the way I want to live. Thank you very much. And the Apostle Paul to the Romans says, you know what, you're storing up for yourself wrath in the day of judgment because God will use that as more to indict you of what he's already accused you of, and that is that you're guilty before God. You will not be able to stand without excuse. Our deeds also will be used to judge us. Our deeds will be used to judge us. In verses 6 through 11, we read, Who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, hey, eternal life. Now, here's where we can misunderstand, and we need to make sure this is very clear. God does not judge humanity for how we live our lives as to where we will spend eternity to some extent. Now let me explain that very clearly. In Revelation 20.13, for all the people in the world who think they can work their way into heaven by doing good things. Okay? We live in a world filled with people. You ask the average person on the street, you ask somebody that you go to school with or somebody that you work with or your neighbors or your relatives, you ask them and you say, you know what, what do you, what do you have to do to get into heaven? And inevitably the answer will be, I need to do enough good things. The next question I'd like to ask is this. Have you done enough good things yet? And the answer always is, I hope so. I hope so? Man, if there's anything you want to be sure of, it's where you're going after you die. Because once you're dead, that's the last chance of where you'll end up. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I would hope that you'd want to know with definitiveness and confidence and assurance what it takes to get into heaven. But the average person on the street is, I just need to do enough good things. The average religious organization will tell you the same thing. If you do this list of things, then maybe you'll get to heaven. God will judge humanity based on that list of things. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Revelation 20:12. According to their works, the man who wants to work for eternal life may do so, it just won't work. You can try it, it just won't work. You will always fall short. And any human being, reasonable human being, knows when you ask them the question, have you done enough good works, there's always one more thing they think they need to do. I have never met anybody who says, you know what? I have done enough good stuff in my lifetime, I feel really confident I'm going to heaven. Really? And then all you guys do is start asking them a couple questions, then they start feeling guilty. Then they realize, that, you know what? I think there's more good stuff that I should be doing, so I better go ahead and start to do that because this is the, the, the pursuit that I'm on. It doesn't work. So there's no misunderstanding or mistake. God's gift of eternal life is freely given to those who believe that Jesus Christ died in their place on the cross. It is a gift from God, not of works, so that no human being can ever boast before God that I worked my way into heaven while other people had to believe their way, I behaved my way. No. You cannot behave your way into heaven. You can only believe your way into the presence of God by believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
That's what the Bible clearly teaches. Titus 3, 5, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, John chapter 11, when, when Jesus went to Martha and said, do you believe that I'll rise from the dead or he'll rise from the dead? She said, certainly on the last day. He said that if you believe in me, you will rise even though you die. Believe upon him and you shall be saved. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, the Bible says, than that of Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to, to the heaven. There's no other way to the Father, Jesus said. But what? But through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible is amply clear that God's plan for salvation and his standard for measurement is not going to be based on how we live our life, but on who we believe in. Now, take it a step further. The Bible also says that how we live our life is indicative of what we say we believe. Talk's cheap. The world is filled with people who claim to be Christians, but their life indicates that they're deceiving themselves. How you live your life is an indicator of who you really are. That's why, as we look at the world around us, they're condemned because God says their lifestyle is wrong before God, but they're only doing that which comes natural. They're condemned. The believer should live a life in a way that indicates that you've come to faith in Christ. There's a different way to live. Walk in the newness of life. Not the way you used to live. Old things pass away. All things become new. There's a contrast between how we used to live and how God wants us to live. Read Ephesians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 5. It's very clear. You can't keep living the same way you used to live and say, well, you know what, though, but now I'm a Christian. Blah, 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 say whatever you want, but according to God, you know what? Your life will indicate if what you say has really happened in your heart has taken place. This easy, easy belief of and stuff of our culture is nonsense. All you do is say this prayer, sign this card, go down in front, do whatever you want to do, and then keep living any way you want to live, and the Bible says, you know what? You're deceiving yourself. That's not the gospel. If any man's in Christ, he's new. He's a new creature. Man, everything old passes away. Everything becomes new. It's exciting. It's a new way of living. Jesus said it's abundant life. It's good stuff. Our deeds will judge us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that those who practice such things, and there's a whole long list of them, says, Don't you know that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Practice doesn't mean keep doing it until you get it right. Just means that's how you live your life. In Romans 2.11, this great principle that's here, and that is this. You know what? God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't have a double standard of judgment. God doesn't say, you know what? You have a nice background. I like your family. You know, your grandma makes good lasagna. You know, you've been going to church. You seem like a good person. You know what? For you, for you, I'll make a deal. God isn't like that. God judges Jews, he judges Gentiles. He judges all of humanity according to what? According to his truth, according to his divine standard. You know, the, the, the confusion at this particular time was that Jews thought they would be judged differently than the Gentiles because after all, God had given them the law, they were God's chosen people, that they thought that they had some type of break uh, as far as judgment was concerned. And we're going to look at that next week. That you know what? God will judge the Jews as he judges Gentiles, as he judges all of humanity according to his divine standards of judgment. He will judge us according to truth. He will judge us according to our attitudes as far as has God's kindness and love and forbearance brought us to repentance or did we shake our fist in the face of God and say we'll do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. He will judge us according to our deeds. The life of those who try to work their way into heaven, their deeds will be exactly what God will use to condemn them of falling short of his standard. Because he says if you violate one aspect of the law, you violated it all. 
And what is the punishment? But eternal death. The fourth thing is this. He will judge us according to our secrets. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. All you've got to do is ask those men who came and presented that adulterous woman to Jesus. That is a frightening thought to think that God will judge us according to our secrets. Can you imagine right now? I was thinking as I was putting this together. I mean, can you imagine right now as you sit here and you listen to those words and as God reminds you through the power of His Holy Spirit as He convicts your heart and the word goes out, as God reminds you of that dirty secret in your life that you think nobody else knows about, but only you, that God knows it. And He will judge you accordingly. All the people, all the self-righteous people, all the moralists who come out and they accuse and they condemn everybody else in the world and they write their scathing editorials and they do all the things that they do, God's saying, you know what? But I know you and you are guilty because you are guilty of violating this standard that I have set up. And you think you're better than other people, but I know you're dirt and I know you're filth. And just as Isaiah said, and I know you're unclean lips and I know that you are guilty before me and he will judge every man according to our very secrets. Now, I don't know about you, man, but I'm sitting here and I'm reading this going, you know what? If all this is true, I'm in deep trouble. Because God knows me better than any of you will ever know me. Better than even my wife will know me and my children will know me. God knows me and he will judge me according to those secrets. And I don't know about you, but if you're sitting there going, man, God's going to judge me according to truth. He's going to judge me according to the fact that, you know what, I'm not, his, his patience and forbearance isn't even beginning to cause repentance in my life. I keep doing what I'm doing, think I'm getting away with it. He's going to judge me according to my deeds and my secrets. And he's also going to judge me according to the objective standard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God so loved this world that He sent His only begotten Son into the world, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that good news is this. This is bad news. If God judges according to truth and our attitudes and our deeds and our secrets, then all of us are guilty and that's terrible news. That's bad news and it should cause each one of us, as it did many times in Scripture, those who heard these words say, what must I do to be saved from the wrath and the judgment of God? And every time the answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That was the answer. That's the only answer. How many times do you hear people say, you know what, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. Well, that's too bad. And I'll tell you why. Because when Philip said, hey, you're going to the Father, show us the way. And Jesus said, hey, Philip, now how long have I been with you? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For I and the Father am one. He said, even before Abraham existed, I am. Claiming to be God. He was crucified for claiming to be God. That was the charge. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And the only person of the Trinity that every human being will stand before is Jesus Christ, the judge. All judgment has been given to him, John chapter 4, Philippians chapter 2, because he was obedient to the point of death even on the cross, that God highly exalted and gave him a name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every human being will bow and confess that he's the Lord. 
to the glory of God. Every human being will have to stand before Jesus Christ to be judged. He has been given all authority to judge. Those who say, I believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus. You're going to believe in Him when you stand before Him and He judges you. Believe Him now according to His Word and what He says is truth. He is God. And He will judge us. The Bible we just read says that God will judge every human being. And then we read that Jesus Christ will be the judge of every human being. Put it together. God and Jesus. God is Jesus. Jesus is God. And people will stand before Him one day and be judged accordingly. Every person will be judged according to God's standard. And the standard is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God loved humanity and sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place as a substitute for our sins. That's good news. But every one of us will have an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you have put your faith and trust in Him, you will spend eternity with Him in heaven forever and ever. Amen. And we will have a relationship with Him for all of eternity. But because you refuse to believe in Him, you will have an eternal relationship with Him, that of one who is condemned and will stand before a judge who will execute sentence for the final time and you will be separated from Him for all of eternity. And that's the relationship you will have. You will have the same relationship as a condemned person who sits before a judge and a judge pronounces sentence. You are guilty. Now take him away, Bala. The question is a very simple one. What are those two relationships? What one do you want to have? The Bible says this, and it's wonderful news. There is now no condemnation, no judgment, no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can resolve that relationship issue today. You can acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you are guilty according to those standards. And you will stand before the Lord. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ took the wrath of God upon himself to those of us who believe. And you and I will never have to answer for sin because when Jesus took our place, he took them from past, present, and even future. They will be held against us no more because we have trusted in him, the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for the clarity of the fact that even as we point fingers at others and declare them guilty, that three fingers are pointing back, shouting the same as us, that all are guilty, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of us has gone astray. And according to your divine standards of judgment, it's very obvious that that is truth. And God, I just pray for each of us who hear these words that we would recognize that we acknowledge before you our sin, that we turn to you and we repent of our sin, and we ask Jesus Christ to come into our life acknowledging that he has died on the cross in our place, that he rose again three days later indicating that he was who he claimed to be, God in very human flesh, able to conquer death and even to forgive sin. God, we just thank you for that. We have eternal life through him. That old things pass away, all things become new. That we have abundant life. There's a new way of living. Walk in a manner in which we've been called. God, what an exciting relationship it is to know that not only can we know you and walk with you today, but it assures us and guarantees us that the day that we're absent from this body, that we'll be present with you. God, we just praise you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.